I want to give a special thanks to Jen McDonald for being here and playing for us this morning. And uh, I just want you to know, I want to thank personally all the different staff and volunteers who are stepping up in this time, like many organizations and school systems and others. Um, you know, we, we struggle not just with COVID, but those who have been exposed or may have been exposed and kind of quarantine and pandemic. And so I just want to thank uh, all of those who have really stepped up in this time and tried to fill in some of these gaps. And uh, you guys have done a tremendous job. These are interesting times, are they not? It's, that's the loudest amen the 8 o'clock has given me yet. And, uh, but it is true. These are very... Uh, challenging times. And so it is good to be here with you, though, this morning. Uh, as I said in the prayer, one of the things that we are greatly reminded of is that no matter how much things may be changing or shifting, um, that God is still God, yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen. All right, so we're going to hop into Joshua this morning as we continue our look at flourishing in the wilderness. And you may say to yourself, well, that's a big leap, and it kind of is. Um, although, let me, let me kind of, let me, uh, I'll bridge the divide right now. Uh, it's not actually, not actually that much happens, quite honestly. So last week, if you were here or if you watched online, you will remember that we were uh, talking about the spies that went over into the promised land, and they were uh, they were very uh, fearful, 10 of the 12 at least, and said, no, we, we shouldn't go. And the Israelites were more than happy to clamor on to the fear and anxiety of the spies. And so once again, they began to question God. And a little bit later in the book of Numbers, Moses himself begins to kind of question God as well. And, and his own faith begins to struggle until the point where God realizes that, quite honestly, that particular generation was not the generation that was called to go into the promised land, that it needed to be the next generation. And so the Israelites were then caused to wander for 40 years until the next generation was ready to go across the Jordan River and into the promised land. That's true, save two people. Those two people were Joshua and Caleb, the two spies, as you may recall, who had the courage to say, hey, we believe in God. And so they were going to also be able to go into the promised land. And where we are now is that Moses has finally passed away after many, many years of leadership. And Joshua, Moses' assistant, again, one of the two spies who were courageous, is now ready to take over. He's going to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And that is where we begin in Joshua chapter 1. I'm going to read just the first five verses right now. I'll read, the, uh, I'll read the concluding four verses after a few minutes. Let's read that now. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, My servant Moses is dead. Now proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the Israelites. And every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and the, and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea in the west shall be your territory. No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
God, we continue to sojourn in the wilderness in this time. The wilderness, as we discover so clearly, even in this time in which we live, is full of the unknown, at times the fearful, at times the peace. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to enter into this land right now with the Israelites. That we might be able to experience what they experienced so that we might be able to know how we are called to live today in the midst of the wilderness in which we live. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen and amen. By the way, did I say Lebanon right? You know, when I saw Lebanon, I'm always... Now it's very hard for me to switch back. So if you're watching from home, from Oregon, I do know how you're supposed to say it, at least at one point. Is it Lebanon, right? That's, it's Lebanon here, Lebanon up north. Is that right? Yeah. All right, good. Thank you. All right. So, all right. So here we are in Joshua chapter 1. Now one of the things I want us to be able to do is I want us to be able to embed ourselves into where the Israelites were. I think that's how we really kind of understand what's happening in this particular book. And one of the things that we begin to understand is just how stark this situation is. Remember how Joshua 1 begins. It begins by saying, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. And then right after that, as if Joshua didn't realize it, the Lord says to him, my servant Moses is dead. I think it's important for us to feel that death, and to realize just how big of a void that would have left for the Israelites as well as for Joshua. You know, uh, over the last two or three weeks, I've met with a couple different people who just lost a parent, the, the second of their two parents, and I think that's a weird feeling. I haven't experienced that, but having dealt with or met with a lot of people for whom that's the case, I think it's a really weird feeling. It's, it's kind of like the sense of, you know, you, you look up and the roof that was your parents is no longer there. And all of a sudden you just see how kind of vulnerable you are. And you, you begin to feel a little bit more of the weight of things, especially I think when you begin to realize that now you are the roof and that your children are looking up at you, right? There's this incredible sense, I think, of, of vulnerability all of a sudden. My guess is that Joshua has been used to having Moses as kind of be the roof, if you will, for so long that now all of a sudden he begins to feel more of the vulnerability. He begins to feel more of the weight. Not only that, I think the simple fact that when you are an assistant to somebody, things feel a lot safer than when you are just the somebody, Right? I mean, you know, Joshua and Caleb, we talked about this last week. They were brave, uh, uh, to be sure. But I think it's always easier to be brave when you know that there's Moses, right, who's the head honcho, right? I, I think every organization experiences this. I know we, we do in the church. I'm oftentimes intrigued by associate pastors. Let me be very clear. Uh, I'm not talking about Scott Shelton. Scott, I see you. I'm not talking about Scott, and I mean that. But I am oftentimes intrigued by associate pastors who, who um, uh, uh, you know, they, they look at the senior pastor and they just think, oh, if I was a senior pastor, I'd tell that parishioner what I really thought. Or I'd be really bold. I would do that. Or I would take that risk or that risk. There's no way I wouldn't do that. I know exactly what I would do. And it's always fascinating then to see that person become the senior pastor and how everything kind of changes 
Right? Once perspective begins to change, when you're not looking up to any kind of senior boss or CEO, but now, now you are the leader, everybody looks different. I'm here to tell you that the Israelites looked different to Joshua the day before Moses died than the day after Moses died. Right? There's all of a sudden this sense, this, this weight, this vulnerability. Not only that, of course, it's not like he's just replacing a nobody. Right? One commentator said that uh, these are some pretty big sandals for Joshua to fill. Right? And, and it's never fun. You know, I, I remember, I think it was the very first sermon I preached here um, when I, we talked about the fact that I was going against the wisdom that I usually tried to give other pastors, which is that you never want to be the person who comes right after a, a leader who has had a massive impact uh, on whatever it is, on the church or the community. And, and that I was, you know, I had some real fear because coming right after Glenn McDonald, who had such a massive impact on this particular church. And the problem is when you, when you follow somebody like that, usually, at least in the church world, usually you're there for about two or three years. Uh, you're what we call a rebound pastor, right? And, uh, and the congregation typically just looks at you and just says, man, you stink. We can't wait to get the first, you know, we, we, we want to go back to the first person, right? So usually that person's there for two or three years, and then the next person comes along, right? And, and, and the third leader, you know, they're like, wow, you know, you're not nearly as good as the first one, but you're nowhere, you don't stink nearly as much as the second one, so we'll keep you, right? And they can usually go a little bit longer, right? And I think that for Joshua, he's got a real, you know, there's a real great chance that he could be the rebound leader here, right? I mean, all of a sudden, like, you're like, wait, I'm taking the place of Moses, the one who stood up to Pharaoh, the one who came in and he held up the staff and all of a sudden the, the waters parted, the one who have dealt with these people for so long. And now Joshua's like, well, I haven't done a thing. And now I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be this person? So just imagine, if you will, imagine Joshua no longer with the safe roof over his head, realizing the sandals he has to fill, realizing that the Israelites, whose name literally means wrestle with God, those are the ones you have to lead. Just picture, if you will, what that would feel like as you stood there, knowing what you are about to face as you cross the Jordan River, and knowing that the Lord is telling you, you are the one who is to do that. Because I think when you begin to understand that, then... Verses 6 through 9 begin to, to take on kind of a deeper meaning. Let's hear those words. The Lord says this, Be strong and courageous, for you shall put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to act in accordance with all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and you shall be successful. I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It is not hard to know what the theme of this part of the story is, is it? Be Strong and 
courageous, right? Three times, and it's been pointed out, in the three times, there is an increasing intensity. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. And then this, I command you, be strong and courageous. Clearly, the Lord here is trying to give Joshua a pep talk of sorts, is he not? He keeps going back to him. You have to be strong. Do not be afraid. One of the things I really appreciate is that God doesn't downplay it. God doesn't say, oh, well, you know what? Don't even worry about it. This is going to be easy peasy. Those, you know, near giants that you saw 40 years ago, they, now they're like grasshoppers. They've really shrunk over the years. It's weird. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry about it. The Israelites, you know, they were always fighting Moses, but I've, I've worked it out, and, and they're just going to be very compliant. So you just tell them what to do, and they'll do it. He doesn't say that, right? We talked about that last week, that if you're going to be strong and courageous, you can't say, I'm going to do that as soon as I get past this really big obstacle. No, no, no. You begin now. And this is what the Lord is beginning to tell him. He's saying, you have to be strong and courageous right now. But what I also appreciate about this particular passage is that he doesn't say, you know, be strong and courageous and then just, you know, just because I said and I'll, you know, I'll talk to you later. You got this, Joshua. No, no. He gives a real reason why. Why is it that Joshua can be strong and courageous? In verses 1 through 9, he says it two different times. He says this in verse 5, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then in verse 9, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's a logic here, I think, that would be helpful for us to understand. There are giants. There are things in front of us, things right here next to us, that are obstacles and that will, for most of us, make us afraid. And so, what does God say to do? God says, be strong. Be strong and courageous. But then the following question is, well, why? Why should I be strong and courageous? And so the Lord says, well, here's why. Because of the fact that I am with you. Okay, that's great. That's great. You are with me. Now, where are you with me? And see, this is where the Lord then begins to say, and this is how. This is how you can know that I am with with you. And I think this is where we begin to see a little bit more into verse 8. We'll talk about that in just a second. But one of the things that we need to realize is that in order for us to really believe that the Lord is with us, in order for us to see that, there is a role that we have to play. I think a lot of times we just think, well, it's just going to kind of happen and God's just going to appear. And there are times when that occurs. But there is actually work that we can do in order to make sure that we are creating space for us to be able to experience God. I came across this quote by Elizabeth Dreyer I want you to see. Here it is. It says, In a profound way, our intentionality is a key ingredient determining whether we notice God everywhere or only in church or only in suffering or nowhere. It all depends on how we choose to fashion our world. 
Far too many of us, I think, just expect, well, we, we should just notice God wherever we go. God should just show up. He, he should be abundantly clear to us. And the reality is there are things that we can do to be more intentional, to fashion our world, to fashion our calendar in order to make sure that we are able to experience God. It always takes intentional creating of space physically, emotionally, spiritually, for us to be able to experience God in more profound ways. Why wouldn't it? This is the way it works in our relationships as well, is it? It is very rare, if ever, that all of a sudden you have a great relationship with your spouse or you have a great relationship with a child or with a parent or with a friend, and it just happened. Can you think of a time when that just happened? It's the weirdest thing. We never hung out. We never talked. I never listened to him or her, but somehow we are just really close. Has anyone ever experienced that? No, I didn't even, I, I don't even want to have you raise your hands because you'd be lying. It happens when you are intentionally creating space. You know, when I started, uh, when we uh, started having uh, kids, especially multiple children, um, I would oftentimes ask parents, um, um, you know, who I really, I, I saw them and I saw their kids and I said, wow, I want to know how you did that. And, and I, would, I would ask them, how did you do that, right? How, did, how was your kid not in jail right now? And so, um, and, and with great regularity, they would say to me, well, here's the one thing that you need to keep in mind. As much as you can, try to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with each of those children. And I thought that was great. See, one of the things it seems to me that we do at times in the church is that we think that gathering together in worship, all of us together, that that's enough, right? And certainly during this pandemic, one of the things we've discovered is how important it is to gather in worship. But to me, it's a little bit like gathering with all of your family. That's good. It's really important. But in order to really deepen the relationship with the other person, you need to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with each of those people, right? Or for me, each of my daughters, or for all of us with God, to spend some one-on-one -on -one time, not just in a group as we think, well, we could check that off for the week. No, no, no. Each and every day to create that space. And I think this is where verse 8 really comes into play. I want us to hear, because what verse 8 is suggesting is that the more that we begin to understand Scripture, the more that we create space for that, the more that we will begin to see and experience that God really is with us. And the more you experience and believe that God is really with you, the more likely you are to be strong and courageous despite the fearful things that may be going on around you. So let's, let's, let's look at this verse 8 again really quickly here. It says, The book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to act in accordance with the experience of God's presence, or experience of all that is written in it, sorry. So let's break that up into three parts. That the scripture should, should never leave your mouth, right? It, in other words, it should always be on your lips. What does that mean? Well, uh, the Jewish people would oftentimes, when they were reading scripture, or not when they were reading scripture, but when they were, they would oftentimes be mumbling, right? And they would be mumbling the words of scripture. And a part of the reason why they would do that is so that they would remember it, uh, recently, I read about um, the philosopher Plato, and, and, and Plato lived during the time when uh, the transition between the oral, when the oral uh, history was more of what was done, to written. And he had a real concern. I thought this was fascinating. He had real concern about that because his concern was this. If we just begin to write things down, then people will stop 
memorizing things. And if they stop memorizing things, then they will forget it. Right? Someone else has said that, um, that, that recording things, writing things down, has a lot more to do with forgetting than it does with remembering. Have you ever thought about that? The reason you write things down is because you're just assuming, I'm going to forget this. Right? And I can forget it because I have it written down. Right? I do that even with my calendar. I put it there so I don't have to keep re- remembering it. Well, that's fine for a lot of things. But if that's what you do with Scripture, oh, well, we have it written down now, so I don't really need to remember it. Then all of a sudden, of course, that means that you easily Forget it, right? So one of the things then that we're called to do here is to keep mumbling Scripture as a way of remembering, as a way of memorizing it. Because the more that it comes to your mind, the more that it seeps in, the more likely it is to come out in everyday living. And the more likely it is to come out in everyday living, the more likely you are to begin to see how the Lord is working through those words. When I was in third grade, I went to a private Christian school and I had to memorize uh, Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. And I, I'll be honest with you, I do not remember much of it. Uh, and so I should go back over it again. But here is what I do remember. Uh, I remember verse 1 uh, in King James Version. Um, um, because that's, uh, well, let me, be, let me be kind. So, uh, uh, so here it is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I cannot tell you the number of times, personally, and then in my work with other people, how many times that particular verse has come up in conversation. That when I'm sitting there and talking to people and they are struggling with their faith, And they're thinking, I want to feel more certain. How come I don't feel more certain? That must mean that my faith is not real. What am I going to do? And when I can say to them, hey, look, here's the thing you need to remember. Don't step down. Here's the thing you need to remember. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You still have faith. Don't feel like the Lord has left you. You still have faith, even if you can't see it. And when I'm able to engage in those conversations, why? Because in third grade, this was not of my own doing. I had to get an A on this thing. Because... It's right there. I can bring it in. Or what about this? A passage that many of us know. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. I have sat at the side of many people on their deathbed. And this is a passage that I almost always say to them. One of the things that's fascinating is even, even for those for whom their memory is not very good at that time any longer, you can begin to see them mumble those words, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And because of the fact that it is so embedded in my mind and in their minds, There is a sense of it being alive. There is a sense of this reminder that, yes, the Lord knew that I was going to be in this very situation, and the Lord is with me. But in order to be able to get to that place, you need to be able to know the Scripture. You need to be able to commit some of this to memory so that it just seeps deeply into who you are. Verse 8 says, don't don't let it depart from your lips. But it also says that we need to be able to practice what it is. Here's how the message puts it. It says, practice everything written in Scripture. 
Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, you know, of course, it's, it's so that we don't want to be hypocrites, right? We don't, want to, we don't want to say, hey, you need to love your neighbor, and then we hate our neighbor, right? Or we don't know our neighbor, or we don't care about our neighbor, right? That's clearly not going to do a very good job of being a witness to God. But, and we've talked about this some before, I actually think it has a lot to do with just this simple reality that Scripture never comes alive. God does not really become alive to you until you begin to actually practice what it is you're reading. In fact, I would suggest it could actually do more harm than good if all you do is know intellectually what Scripture's saying. Uh, um, there's, a, there's a quote that I've used, I've used before, and I think it's actually really helpful even as we talked, we've been talking about Israelite in the wilderness. It, it brings up manna. It uses manna as imagery. Uh, you'll remember manna. We talked, not yet, not yet. Sorry, Amanda. Uh, we talked about this. Don't read. I saw some of you reading. Don't read. Um, about how when they were collecting manna, right, six of the days they were only to collect just enough for the day, right? The day before Sabbath they could collect two but there were some of those, of course, the Israelites, as you may recall, who they collected too much, and then the food began to rot, right? And so um, Julian Green, she uses that imagery for what exactly it is I'm talking about. Let's look at that now. It says, the story of the manna gathered and set aside by the Hebrews is deeply significant. It so happened that the manna rotted when it was kept. And perhaps this means that all spiritual reading, which is not consumed by prayer and by works, by working it out, ends by causing a sort of rotting inside of us. You die with a head full of fine sayings and a perfectly empty heart. I think that's an incredibly powerful line. And that's a great imagery, it seems to me. If all you do is know what Scripture says and you never practice it, you will begin to live a dichotomized life. And that can do nothing but make you feel more and more distant from God. But in those moments when you begin to practice what the Scripture tells you, in those moments when, when you begin to genuinely love your neighbor, as risky as that may be, and then, we've talked about this before, all of a sudden it works out, and like something incredible happened because you took a risk to love your neighbor, in those moments you feel closer and you experience God much greater than you would have if you only thought, I should love a neighbor. Those moments when you are generous and it's sacrificial and there's a certain amount of fear that goes in being sacrificially generous. And you say, I just don't know if I should really do this, but Scripture says I should be generous. Okay, I'm going to give it a shot. And in those moments when it does and all of a sudden you see the Lord work through that and the Lord provide, those are the moments when you say, wow, I experienced God in some way in this. Those moments when you decide to love an enemy, as difficult as that may be, and as challenging as it is, and in so doing, all of a sudden, you begin to experience God in a different way by that particular act. I can promise you, in those moments, those are the times when you begin to say, wow, the Lord really is with me. But as long as Scripture stays only in your head and is not practiced, you should not be surprised that you do not experience God in deeper ways. Verse 8 says, we commit these things to our minds. We mumble them. We memorize them. We practice them. But then it also says that we meditate day and night. Now, I left that one, of course, in light of this challenge that I'm wanting us to think about over the next 
40 days, a challenge that starts today. Now, you may not believe me uh, when I tell you this, but last week when I said, look, I'm, I'm giving us a challenge to start on the 22nd, and that's t- the 15th, that's today, um, right? Yeah. 40 days up until Christmas. I said, I want us to meditate for 15 minutes every day. I want us to commit to doing that. Uh, when I said that last week, I honestly, and I'd already planned on preaching on this, I did not, either I didn't remember, uh, or I just got really lucky, um, or perhaps this is how the Spirit works, that actually this week's passage had the word meditate in it. Um, um, I think it's somewhat providential. Um, this, this, this term meditation is a really important word for us to understand. Uh, it means, uh, literally, it means more of to mutter or um, typically um, it means to growl, right? To growl over Scripture, which is kind of weird. It's not usually how we think about meditating, right? Eugene Peterson, um, uh, I think we've discussed this before, Eugene Peterson clams on, clamors on to that sense of growling over Scripture, and he gives the analogy that it's, it's like a dog uh, growling over a bone, Right, like not in a mean way, but but one. Have you seen that when 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 a dog kind of just starts digging into a bone and is just so happy? It's just this. I'll try to not be too gross, but it's just this. You know, this 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 this. You know, and 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 it's just this this sense of pure joy. Right now, the dog could have just like read, "Oh, milk bone." Okay, that's cool. You know, I'm just going to commit that to memory. The dog could have just kind of eaten a bone and then just kind of kept going, eating bone after bone after bone, never really kind of, you know, uh, enjoying it or delighting in it very much. But as Peterson says, no, 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 this is about just kind of digging in. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if you've ever had this, and, 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 and this is kind of gross, but when you're eating, a, you know, fried chicken on a bone or something like that, and you think, oh, it's all over, and then... You find one slab that's camouflaged because it's white. It looks just like the bone. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, there's a whole other piece of meat right here. Have you ever had that? Am I the only? Thank you. My wife, Megan, hates eating chicken on a bone, so she will be very grossed out when I describe this to her. But uh, it's just, just this incredible, this delight that you only would have gotten if you'd kept chewing on it, right? And that's what, that's what Eugene Peterson says. This is what Scripture does. Not, not when you kind of, oh, I'm going to read, you know, I'm going to read 10 chapters today, and I'm going to cross that out, or I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to memorize it and keep it in my head. No, no, no. He says that when you do this, then, you, then you, you're kind of, you, you, you just keep chewing, and it just begins to, to go deep into your mouth, and then into your stomach and out into your pores, and then it begins to come out as, as wisdom and justice and holiness because you've just sat there and you just gnawed and gnawed and gnawed on it. See, that, I think, is what this scripture is talking about when it says meditation. We need to commit it to memory, absolutely. We need to practice it to be sure. But we also just need to sit to create space to just growl on it. And that's the challenge for us over the next 40 days. Starting today, for 15 minutes, I'm inviting you to meditate, to growl. Now, there's a lot of different ways to do this. This scripture, or this, yeah, this passage is talking about not just kind of generally meditating, but meditating on a particular scripture passage. 
Uh, I, I thought, should I give you guys, should I, should I tell you guys, okay, you should do it just like this, or here's one way. I don't want to pigeonhole you, uh, uh, but I also want you to be aware that, you know, there are particular ways to do it. And so uh, if you go on that QR code in the bulletin and on our website, there are a lot of different ways to kind of meditate. We have several different ways there if you want to try one of those. Um, but one way that you may want to do it, and, and so I'll, I'll talk about it here right now, is, is every week I'm going to give you a different scripture passage. And if you want to use that, great. If you want to use a different one, that's fine. Um, but this week is going to be Psalm 1. My encouragement is this, to take the first five minutes and just keep reading it again and again and again and again, right? As a way of kind of almost beginning to slowly commit it to memory. If you think about it, that means for 35 minutes in a week you will have read a, a particular scripture passage. It's not very long. You know, how many times do you think you could read it? Probably a lot. Then to take another five minutes and just do nothing. Just kind of think about it. You know, you're going to have random thoughts come across your head. That's fine. That's fine. It just happens. But just try to kind of keep going back to that first psalm, if that's the one you use, and just keep thinking about it. And then I want to encourage you, maybe, maybe then you want to take another five minutes. This will be to get you up to 15. And, and, and I want you to, maybe you can journal about it, right? Just write, these are the thoughts that I had. And it could be like, I thought about, you know, the fact that I need to clean my laundry today. Or it, th- that's fine, right? I mean, hopefully over time, you know, it, maybe it'll have something to do with Psalm 1. There's nothing about cleaning laundry, as I recall, in that. But, but just kind of keep working on it. Or maybe you want to draw something, or maybe you want to paint a picture. Uh, my wife, uh, this week, in anticipation of this, she went to, I think it was Target, and got a, this journal. I've never seen one like this. that has just lines on the bottom, and then at the top of every page is blank space where she could draw something or, or do something else. But I want to encourage you to just kind of to, 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 to do that, to, to, spend, to spend 15 minutes over the next 40 days. And just see what happens. Now, look, it's a little risky. I was talking to somebody earlier this week. He was like, well, I don't know. I, it's a little fearful. And I'm like, well, why is this fearful? Well, what happens? What if nothing happens? That's fair. It could be that just nothing happens. But I'm pretty sure nothing will happen if you don't try it as well. So you might as well give it a try for 15 minutes over the next 40 days leading right up until Christmas to take this challenge Now, as Chris Evans said last week in that interview I did with him about meditation, one of the things that you should know, it's not going to happen in a day. I mean, there's a reason why we said 40 days, right? Um, And again, I'm not saying, well, if you had only done 39, you guys are going to be sunk. You're not going to experience God. Um, But let's just take 40 days. Be patient with yourself. If you miss a day, don't worry about it. Just get on it the next day and just see. You know, the gospel looks different in every context, In our particular communities, very success-driven, busy, harried, I think the good news of the gospel for us and our people here is that we don't have to continually run in that rat race, that we can create space, that we can slow down and be counter-cultural in this time. And in a season where everyone is fearful and anxious, In a season, even during COVID, I feel quite confident when things keep picking up and speeding up during Christmas season, what might happen if a group of people say, you know what, we're going to stop everything. And for just 15 minutes over the next 40 days, we're going to quiet our hearts and minds in the hopes that we might experience God in deeper ways so that we might be strong and courageous. May it be so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
God, I do pray that you would be with us and give us the strength to be still and courageous. We don't know exactly what you have in store for us over the next 40 days. What we do know is that you have promised to be with us. And so our hope is that we will notice you. And that as we meditate on your word, as we meditate on who you are, and then go out into the world, that we would see you fully alive. May that give us peace and greater faith. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.